talk about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Rob Streeter, and he'll be answering your questions on the greats of Adirondack fly fishing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Rob a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, which you appreciate if you'd share a podcast, and when you do, use hashtag Ask About Fly Fishing and also hashtag Fly Fishing. We'd really appreciate it. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Whether you want to catch your first permit in Belize, tame a giant tarpon in the Florida Keys, or wrestle a mint-bright Atlantic salmon in eastern Canada, Gills Fly Fishing International's well-traveled booking team has the knowledge to make it happen. They consider trust to be the single most important aspect of their work. The only book locations that they know, meaning proven operations, providing the right mix of great fishing, comfortable accommodation, and high integrity. Get in touch today to start planning your next fly fishing adventure. Visit flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. That's flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Before we introduce Rob, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawings, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Rob's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the forms, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Rob's latest book, the greats of Adirondack fly fishing. Now here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question is going to be about something that Rob and I talk about during the show. It could be a one-part, two-part question. We'll know when I know what the question is. So all you have to do is use that form on the homepage. It's the same form that you can use to ask questions during the show. Use that form put in your name, location, and your answer, and the first person that gets it correctly submitted will win Rob's book, and we'll get that sent out to you. So, Our guest tonight is Rob Streeter. Rob is an award-winning outdoor writer. His fly fishing articles have appeared in national publications, including American Angler and Outdoor Life. He also was the outdoor columnist for two upstate New York newspapers, Albany Times Union and Amsterdam recorder for many years. Rob's photography illustrated many of these articles. Rob is a lifelong fly fisherman since he started fishing with his first fly rod at age seven. He has fished for saltwater species in Florida and has fished as far north as Alaska. He has fished extensively throughout the Northeast 
And Rob has also tied flies for the same amount of time and has created fly patterns for trout and warm water species. He's the author of three fly fishing books, including the New York Fly Fishing Guide, The Warm Water Fly Fishing, Finding and Catching Warm Water Species, and his new book, The Great of Adirondack Fly Fishing. Rob's new book explores the lives of six anglers who shaped fly fishing in New York's Adirondack Mountains, including the fly patterns that they developed and the book brings forth tales that need to be told about the way that fly fishing was in the Adirondacks as we strive to return angling to its former glory there. Rob has also produced two fly fishing DVDs, including Tying and Fishing for Smallmouth Bass and Tying and Fishing for Panfish. Rob, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. <laughs> Hi, Roger. I appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, great to have you. This is going to be fun because I have a lot to learn about the Adirondacks, and it's not a place that I've fished yet, but everything's on the bucket list nowadays, so <laughs> want to learn more. And uh, let's start out with just kind of getting oriented here. First, where are the Adirondacks geographically, since we do have an kind of international audience here and like to get people oriented, and then we'll go from there. Well, the Adirondacks are the mountains in the northern part of New York State. They run roughly from just north of the Mohawk River up towards the Canadian border. And the Adirondacks are unique because it's a six million acre public land park, which is huge in comparison to a lot of the national parks that we have in the West. It's a very large landmass with a lot of public land and a lot of waters to fish. So that's all public land, or is it? I mean, it's not entirely to... public. It's not entirely okay. public land. There are some, you know, paper company lands up in there, but there are six million acres of public land within the Adirondacks within the wow. park. Wow! Wow! Pretty wild up there. Yeah, it is. It's the High Peaks area and all of that is pretty rugged area. It's uh, If you wandered off in a snowstorm and you went the wrong way, it might be 30, 40 miles before you hit a road. So, wow. Yeah, it's wow. pretty yeah. remote. Yeah, interesting. Um, is the fishing up there primarily streams and rivers, or is there a mixture of lakes that uh, you fish up there as well? There's an incredible amount of water up in the Adirondacks. There's many, many streams and rivers ranging from tiny blue line brook trout streams to rivers that are going to be bigger with browns and even warm water species like bass. There are some pretty extensive lakes up in the Adirondacks. Uh, a lot of people have heard of Lake George. Mm -hmm. um, Lake Champlain yeah. is up on the edge of the Adirondacks, so there's some very large lakes up there. And there are trout ponds, hundreds of trout ponds scattered throughout the Adirondacks. So there's just a, a ton of various waters that you could go up and fish. Are most of the fish native there or wild, I should say? Well, the Department of Environmental Conservation does stock trout, but there are a lot of conservation efforts that have gone in up there to restore the wild trout populations with heritage strains of the, uh, especially with the brook trout. And those efforts have been done on a lot of the remote backcountry trout ponds. 
So it's a mix. The more popular streams are certainly going to have stockfish. Uh, lately, they have put a mapping application on the website so you can the streams are classified similar to other states where you might have a wild trout stream with a certain set of regulations or you might have a kind of a stock trout stream with a different set so it's there's a variety mm-hmm. okay okay um all right, we do have some questions about fishing there, but let's come to those in a minute. I'd like to get started with just you telling us, uh, you know, in your book, you start out this way, uh, telling us a bit about, you know, the history. Where did it start and who did it start with the fly fishing in the Adirondacks? The history is pretty interesting. And, and the reason I got involved with wanting to write this book was there really wasn't a book on the history of the Adirondack fly fishing. You see so much in the history of American fly fishing dedicated to the Catskills, and rightly so, because you had folks like Theodore Gordon and and others make their mark down there. But the story of the Adirondacks never really got told, and it goes back that far, if not even further. So today I was out before the show on my skis. I have a spot that I ski along the Mohawk River, and I ski down towards Sir William Johnson's house, Fort Johnson. It's probably within five miles of my house. And he was a Revolutionary War general, uh, pre-Revolutionary War, I should say. He was involved in the French-Indian War. And he's significant because Johnson loved to fish and he loved to hunt. And he, he was a great friend of the Iroquois Indians. And he had uh, a place called Fish House along the Sacandaga River where he fished. He had another place in what today is Broad Alban near the Kenyatta Creek. And Fort Johnson sits right on a small trout stream called Cateroceras. So Johnson, being an English military officer, came from a group of people that, you know, was fairly wealthy in England, and they would certainly gravitate towards fly fishing. The sad thing is, is Johnson was very businesslike in his journals and everything. He talked more about the the war things and his dealings. He was a great friend of the Iroquois, like I said. Uh, All the political and all of the military stuff, he never really kept records of his fishing. But he had an officer in his group called uh, Lieutenant John Ennis. And Ennis is the one that has the first documented fly fishing in the Adirondacks. The British had lost the Revolutionary War, and Ennis was part of a group retreating to the north to Canada along Lake Champlain. And they were going by boat along Lake Champlain. And he documents fly fishing for salmon in what is now hmm. Plattsburgh, New York, at the mouth of the Saranac. So, wow. you know, Johnson and everything, the ties of fly fishing in the Adirondacks go back to um, Revolutionary War time where you can document it, but I certainly believe Johnson fly fished in the Adirondacks, and he was there in the 1750s. So our salmon, I guess they were running up into Lake Champlain at that time, right? Uh, land, salmon, yeah, 
they were no, they were Atlantic salmon because the dams were not in place along the St. Lawrence River. So these were uh, ocean-run Atlantic salmon, and they they also would run the rivers in New York and run up into them and spawn out of the lake, and that's where they were catching them. But wow. yeah, they had Atlantic salmon runs. I, I believe they had them even here in the valley where I live, uh, coming up the Hudson and then up into the Mohawk back during those times. Yeah, yeah. Hard to believe, huh? Uh, we've lost so much. <laughs> lost so much. Yeah, that we have. Yeah. Um, what else was, as things progressed from Johnson's day, I know you noted in your book about fish camps and the the yeah. development of guides and so forth in that area. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, they were actually, they were called the Great Camps. And during the mid-1800s, the fairly wealthy folks in the New York City area, you're talking like the industrialists that own manufacturing concerns or, you know, large companies, they would start coming up into the Adirondacks to vacation once they started getting rail lines that could get them up there. And they would come up and they, you know, they just wanted recreation. And this led to these great camps. And the great camps were usually owned by the wealthy families. They were just huge camps. We used to have one that we had, uh, it's owned by Syracuse University now, but we had our some meetings from work there. Uh, and they're big, beautiful camps with log cabin buildings, you know, great rooms, and a lot of luxury. Birth of these camps led to the guiding business because these folks wanted to fish and they wanted somebody to take them and, you know, take them out for the day, show them where to fish and and take care of their fish and so on. So it sprang an industry of guiding up there. And one of the places was Paul Smith's, which is now a college, but they had as many as a hundred guides working during the summer there. So it, it, was an area that was relatively, you know, financially destitute, and it brought this this industry up in into that area, and so much so that the guides they developed a unique boat you can see in the Adirondack Museum, the guide boat, and it was a cedar strip boat that weighed about 80 pounds, and the guide could carry it into a pond and then row his client around all day in the boat. And they're really a work of art and a beautiful thing to see. But this guiding industry brought a lot of people up there. And the way they fished, they fly fished. They Not just for trout, they would fish for bass and pike, anything that would hit a fly. But fly fishing was the primary way that these folks fished. And that really brought the fly fishing sport up into the Adirondacks and, and made it much more prevalent. Um, starting in the late 1800s and on into the early 1900s. And it was all because of these, you know, the creation of these great camps. Yeah, 100 guides. That, <laughs> that's huge. That's a, yeah, I mean, he, he 100 guides a, means 100 fly hotel. fishers. And, yeah. Wow, wow. The hotel Pretty interesting. Up, yeah. up there. Yeah, yeah interesting. So, um yeah, let's come. Let's answer a few questions about the fishing nowadays up there. We'll come back. We'll talk 
about some of these great people that have that came out of the Adirondacks and fished up there. But let me grab a couple of these questions that people wrote in about. Phil Burden in Apex, North Carolina, is asking about, um, for your trout fishing up there, what are your three go-to flies? This is always, uh, people always put this question and it's like, well, okay. it depends, right? <laughs> but why what, don't you give it a shot? Well, it does depend and it doesn't depend. And uh, the one, my all-time favorite fly is the Osable Wolf. And that is that was created by Fran Betters, and that's somebody I'm sure we'll be talking about later in our yeah. discussions here. Uh, I like it. It's an attractor fly, and I fish backcountry brook trout streams, and I also use it on the bigger streams up there. I also, my, my second favorite would be a blue wing olive. Um, mm, I yeah. fished a bunch of BWO hatches up there and did well and my third favorite would be an isonychia as you get towards fall you get some of the big slate grays coming off and that's a good time phil also asked do you have a favorite place in the adirondacks that you like to go trout fishing uh that's a huge area but (laughs) yeah i have many favorite places i think one of my most favorite rivers is the west branch of the osable Mm, okay. Okay. Jonathan Landers in Tampa, Florida, wrote in and asked, what do you recommend for streamer fishing in the Adirondacks? I understand dries are the traditional go-to, but what about the rest of the time? Well, when you talk about streamer fishing in the Adirondacks, you could be talking about two different things. You could be talking about, stream, well, three, actually, streamers for trout, streamers for salmon, or, you know, streamers in lakes for trout. And my favorite streamer, I have one that I talk about in the book. It's the Margot smelt, and it's a smelt pattern. And I really like that because I used to work in Warrensburg, and one of the guys that works used to fish for lake trout, and it's kind of a weird fishery in Lake George. And he says, well, you want to see if you can get one on the fly rod? And I went out with the Margot smelt that Ed Bendel created. And my first time ever trying to fly fish for Lakers, I caught and released nine of them on it. And I typically can can get a Laker or two to hit that because it's a real good smelt pattern. Um, another fly that I wouldn't be without up there is a black woolly bugger. And that's oh, more wow. for yeah. the trout ponds because a lot of those ponds have leeches and that is a pretty good leech pattern for the ponds either a black or a real dark olive woolly bugger um when i was a lot younger i used to fish ponds with a hornbird which is kind of a remember that pattern yeah Yeah. and you know that'll work but I, i don't think if you're fishing any of the standard trout streamers today I don't see why they wouldn't work well. I mean, I'm not a big streamer guy other than, like I said, ponds and lakes, but those would be my two cents worth. You've mentioned trout, brick trout. Um, what other trout are available up there? And you also mentioned salmon. Are those landlocked salmon nowadays uh, that they've stocked? Yeah, or? there's landlocked salmon and brown trout, and I think even some rainbows that run the tribs of Lake Champlain. 
and uh, some of the other lakes, like Lake George used to have more landlocked salmon than it seems to have now, but it's got a real good wild lake trout population. Mainly in the Adirondacks, you're going to either have wild brookies or you're going to be into some wild and some stock browns on the standard trout streams. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break. And then we come back, we'll talk about some more fishing there and then start talking about some of these great men that you have in your book uh, that they had around back. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Muskie Town is so much more than a muskie shop. Whether you're a muskie fly fishing guide, an experienced muskie hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever life's adventures take you, Muskie Town's proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for muskie, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity. So they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, and enjoy legendary fly shop service. And please let them know if there's ever anything that they can help you with. Next time you think of muskie, go to muskietown. That's muskietown.com, or call them at 763-312-6012. Again, that's muskytown.com, 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Rob Streeter about the greats of Adirondack fly fishing. If you'd like to ask Rob a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. Rob, that's what's going on in your fly fishing world, so tell us what's happening. Well, we're getting ready to take a, about a month-long trip. My wife and I are both retired, and we bought an Airstream, so we're going to go down to Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina, and I will be doing some trout fishing in North Carolina, and I'm going to try redfish out of a kayak in Georgia Nice. we're down there. Yeah, yeah. That's a variety <laughs> from redfish to trout, but uh, yeah, that's cool. There's a lot of, along that South Carolina coast, a lot of good fishing I hear. So uh, that should be fun. Yeah. Get away from the cold and, um, and do the airstream things. We've got some friends up here across the way that uh, go to these, I guess it's almost not like Sturgis, but uh, they have airstream um, Conferences, uh, you know, conclaves yeah, or whatever. Like yeah, meet yeah. meetups and stuff. We haven't really yeah. done that. We're usually just us, but they do have those. Yeah, and, and you had also mentioned you have a website, and a YouTube channel. You want to tell people about what you've got out there? Yeah, um, the flies that we're talking about tonight. You know, as we're going through the book here. Um, I have instructional videos for each one of those on my YouTube channel, which is Rob's Outdoors. And I also have other flies. I've got a series that I'm doing now on salmon and steelhead flies. And I've done uh, all of the warm water flies for my book. So there's a lot of fly tying and there's fly fishing content that folks might enjoy. And I also have a, you know, Instagram and Facebook posts and pages that are Rob Streeter Outdoors, and I also have a website, which is wrobstreeter.com. Okay, good. People can follow you there, see what you're up to. Now, do you have any other books planned or other writing 
assignments? I have another fly fly fishing book that I am working on, and I probably got about done. But it's it's I'm not going to tell you what the topic is because it's I don't think there's anything else out there like it. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to give it away till I have it done. But yeah, uh, you yeah, said I'm uh, on a fly fishing book. You're kind of been fading in and out at times. I don't know if you're moving away from the mic, but uh, I couldn't hear you when you said you're about blank away from i guess getting it done what, yeah i'm what, about uh, i'm about can't hear you what's can you hear me roger now i can yeah last thing yeah, i heard about, was i'm about half done with the book oh about half done okay okay are you using a headset or a Earbuds or what I are you using? E- I've got earbuds. I can uh, just go to holding the phone here. Yeah, it's kind of at times it just sounds like you're moving away from your mic or something, or if you, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can adjust those things and we get okay, a better. How about now? Yeah, that's good. Yep. Okay. I'll try and sit still. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. So uh, good, good. Well, sounds like you've got some some work and some fun happening here uh, in the next few months. So good for you. Okay, let's get back to this. Let's uh, talk about some of these people that you wrote about. Uh, let's start with, I guess you started in your book and uh, with Ray Bergman. All right. Uh, the, the the first that I talk about is uh, William Scripture Jr. Oh, yeah. I'm because sorry. Yeah. In the chronology, he was the earliest one. He um, okay. He started fly fishing in the late 1800s and he lived to 19, early 1960s is when he passed away. And he was a very interesting man. Um, His father was a famous New York State Supreme Court judge, and Scripture Jr., or Scrip as they call him, he basically had no choice but to become a lawyer. If it was up to him, he would have been a fly fishing guide, or he he would have owned a fly shop. He had to be a lawyer. And his childhood and everything was interesting. Because the principal at the school, if he didn't see him on a Thursday and saw him on a Friday, he'd ask him how the fishing was. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he was uh, funny. He would get himself into trouble. And uh, he was incredibly interesting. And what, what interested me about him was I, when I put my book together, I, I didn't set out to make it just of six men but they were the ones that had the biggest contribution. Scripture and his father used to get their flies from a woman named Ida Wolcott, who had a tackle company in the late 1800s around Rome, New York, where they lived. And what Scripture did to learn how to tie flies, he snuck into his father's fly boxes and took a pair of scissors and he reverse engineered the flies. And I could only imagine judge scripture senior the look on his face when he went to go fly fishing and his flies were all gone because <laughs> his son had chopped them all up with a pair of scissors but that's that's how he learned how to tie flies and the really neat thing about scripture junior and i could not do this 
he tied flies without a vice. He just held the he held the hook in his hand, in his left hand, and he tied with his right hand. And he could tie a dry fly with uh, you know standard quill ring quill winged dry fly in a couple of minutes in his hand. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. So and where did he go? What, yeah. Go ahead. What's really interesting about him, I mean, there's all kinds of stories that he had in his memoir that his, his granddaughter typed up for him. But uh, he fished, and, and you got to imagine, they didn't have cars, so they were going by horse and buggy to go fish. And he fished a lot in the east branch of Fish Creek, and then they eventually they got up to West Canada Creek. They would fish the Oswegatchie River. And he had some very famous friends. He was good friends with Dr. Henry Van Dyke, who was the ambassador to the Netherlands under the Wilson administration. And he also was friends with Dr. George Parker Holden, who was a famous, and both Van Dyke and Holden were famous uh, fly fishing writers of their day, as well as the, you know, their other occupation. And they would come up and go fish in the summer with script for a month at Fish Creek. They would stay in tents and get into all kinds of hijinks and, and have a good time, but they would go up and do the, and fish those streams. And, and what just blew me away reading his story was back then they would go out, they didn't measure trout in inches, they measured them in pounds. And these guys were catching trout that were in the double digit size on dry flies, streamers, in some of these streams that they fished. Uh, just incredible sized fish that he describes in great detail in his memoir. Now, how did you find out about, I mean, this is not a name I knew, um, you know, Wolf, Bergman, you know, Fetters, uh, many of us know. Is he kind of obscure um, or am I just um, he had uneducated? He <laughs> relative amount of notoriety, but his peak fishing years were in, you know, the early 1900s up into like the 1930s. Um, he wasn't really like a, a fishing writer. He was just mm -hmm. an excellent fly angler and people caught on to him and what he did. And he, he was relatively well known in the Northeast as a fly fisherman during that time. But some of these other names certainly overshadowed him. But uh, definitely worth mention because he pioneered fly fishing on a lot of these Adirondack streams and created his own fly patterns. He, Mike Valla, uh, another oh, writer yeah, Mike. that I'm a, yeah. an acquaintance of Mike, Mike on to scripture and then I was able to contact his family and get his memoir and I got some of the photos and, and a lot of information from them and oh, he certainly okay. belongs in any book on uh, the great Adirondack fly fishing. He would have been the earliest one along the timeline. Now what he said he fished all over and developed some of these areas or kind of pioneered the areas. What was he um, 
uh, guide? I mean, did people go to him for guiding or? Oh, no. Okay. He was a lawyer playing hooky. Okay. His father was the Supreme Court Justice, and he insisted that both of his sons were going to be lawyers. And uh, Scrip, if you could find a way of playing hooky and going fishing, Scrip would find it. So, for example, he was sent to New Mexico to another lawyer, and they called it reading the law. So they were they were going for their training to become a lawyer. So his father sent him to this other lawyer in New Mexico. Well, in a museum in New Mexico, there's pictures of Scrip that had fallen off a horse because he was playing hooky from the law office and went with some guys for about a week to go fly fish for trout up in the mountains, and he fell off the horse. So <laughs> he would always find some way of getting out and going fishing. Okay, okay. So next up is Ray Bergman. Tell us about Ray. Ray was an interesting man. And Ray's story really isn't Ray's. Ray's story is the story of two people. It's Ray and his wife, Grace. Because what happened was Ray was a fly tire, and he initially went into a fishing tackle business that he founded in the 1920s. And his business went belly up, and he had kind of a mental breakdown. And what happened was Grace, his wife, took him up to the Adirondacks in the Cranberry Lake region, and they rented a cabin. And he went up there, and he did nothing but fish for like five, six months. They just left, and they went up there and, and fished. And it's her being behind him and encouraging him and trying to help him were the, was the reason that he got to where he got as far as being a famous fly angler and writer. So he spent this time up in this cabin up around Cranberry Lake, and uh, he discovered that he liked to write. So he wrote a couple stories about his fishing up in the cabin. He came back, and the story sold. Um, it wasn't outdoor life yet, but, I mean, there was a couple magazines at the time that were pretty well known. And he started selling stories to these magazines. And he kind of got back in the tackle business. He was working for somebody else. And he eventually did so well with these stories and with his writing that he made his living out of that. He also was an, an epic fly tire. He tied thousands and thousands of flies a year. So he had his own fly tackle business in addition to the writing. Well, Bergman wrote the book Trout, and it's an iconic book. And, if, you know, for the folks right. listening into the show, if you've never got that book, you can find them at used bookstores. Buy the book and sit down and read it. Because a lot of the stuff they're talking about, I mean, we think of all these things, you know, that we're on the edge of technology on fly fishing today. And all that. you're going to see a lot of stuff that you wouldn't believe went way back to then. And, uh his detail that he goes into on his fishing tactics and how he did things and everything is incredible. 
But what made the book so unique was the book was illustrated by beautiful paintings of all the flies. So you'll open the book and there'll be a dozen flies on the page and they were all hand painted by an artist, which was something that was never really done with a book at that time. And that's what made the book so incredible. But the writing in it and everything was incredible. So he went and kind of moved off of the fame that he got for that, and he got a job as the uh, angling editor for Outdoor Life. That's a prestigious job. And Bergman was a man after my own heart because Outdoor Life was headquartered in an office in New York City. They never saw the guy. Bergman lived in Nyack, north of New York City. He never went for meetings. He was supposed to go down to the meetings. He and his wife would take off and just go across the country by car. And just he was just fishing all the time, fishing and writing, photographing and all that. And she was right there to support the whole endeavor. And uh, he was an incredible editor for Outdoor Life for the time that he, he spent working for them. Yeah, that that is pretty interesting. He's kind of like living the life of a journalist nowadays that can live virtually, right? I mean, you can be a writer and be almost anywhere. Um, he uh, invented teleconferencing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very good for him. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like he was instrumental in bringing fly fishing, you know, out to the general public in a more direct way than it had been up to that point, right? He certainly did. And he, you know, at the time, you got to imagine that even up until when I started fly fishing, fly fishing wasn't something where it it was kind of somewhat elitist and it wasn't really something that, you know, common people got into. It was more a little bit more of a game of the wealthy and Bergman made it every man's sport. It was for everybody. And the stuff that he did to do that, you got a picture, you know, we're used to the interstate system and I can go from my house and drive to your house and there's rest stops and there's, you know, anything I need along the road. Well, Bergman lived just North of New York city in a place called Nyack. They would go in these rickety cars, you know, Model Ts, and drive up to the Adirondacks. It took all day to drive there. They were they considered themselves lucky if they only had like one flat tire on the way up. Mm. There were no, you know, there's no AAA coming to tow you. <laughs> right, <laughs> you're, right. You're pretty much on your own. It's a remote area. So just the getting up there and the logistics of doing the fishing that he did were very difficult at the time. Yeah, people weren't in a hurry back then, were they? <laughs> no. Today, it's like we're trying to figure out how what's the fastest way I can get to, you know, X location so I can do whatever. And uh, back then, you know, what you would take a week to do what we'd want to accomplish in, you know, a couple of hours here, you know, today. Yeah, it's. It's kind of just a whole different world back then. I uh, can't imagine it. Um, and yet so much got done. <laughs> they got so much done. I think a lot more thinking got done back then than gets done today. Um, you know, I, I that's, that's, Yeah, that's one thing I struggle with is 
just finding time to, to sit and think. And there's just too much going on, you know, to do that anymore. But on those long trips. Quiet time. Yeah, yeah, quiet time where no phones, no computer, those kind of things. Yeah, uh, time to think. Yeah, interesting. So um, if you could sum up Bergman in a sentence, uh, what would what would you say his, his contribution would be to fly fishing? I think Bergman's contribution, and rightly so, is the, the book Trout. I, okay. I think that will forever be the summation of his contribution. Bringing that book to the public in you know, such a wonderful book and in such a way that, you know, I could go in there and, and there's folks, uh, I talked to one, he was a real fan of Bergman's. He's passed away, Don Bastian. Um, and he dedicated a lot of his life. Don did to bring in back the Bergman patterns. He tied them and photographed them. He had a website, um, bringing them back into today's day and age. So, here, this man Bergman, he's been gone for 60 years, and we're still talking about Ray Bergman today. Yeah, well, he, I mean, I don't know the chronology of you know some of these publications, but was it maybe one of the first significant and comprehensive book about fly fishing? Probably not the first book about fly fishing, but in terms of a combination of a book that had such incredible detail in the writing and combining that with incredible detail of the illustrations to to bring it to life um, it was the first of its kind mm-hmm. yeah I was just I'm, I'm scrolling through Amazon trying to find when that I'm not in my house that where I have my copy which is I think an original copy um, but I noticed it's been reprinted on Amazon and stuff, but I can't find the original publication date. Do you know what that was? It was in, I think it was in the 1930s. 30s, yeah. I can, yeah. yeah, I can check. Yeah, I, I found mine in a in a used bookstore one day. I was always always check the fishing section, and you'd be surprised what you find. <laughs> but that's where I got my copy. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Well, let's see. Oh, it was 1938. 1938. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Quick break here, and when we come back, we'll we'll dig in more and talk about some of uh, some more of these fly fishing greats from the Adirondacks. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one of a kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish. For more than 20 years, his innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want want your flies hand-tied for you or you would like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today. Again, that's epflies.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Rob Streeter about the greats of Adirondack fly fishing. If you'd like to ask a question, fill out that form on our homepage, send it in, and we'll see if we can't get it answered. So let me, uh, Rob, let me check here and see what we've got that's come in on the internet. I always like to 
uh, try to get some of these answered. Phil McCartney wrote in, and uh, I think we're answering the first part of your question, so I'll go to the second part, Phil. Uh, he says, were the greats included in your book concerned about conservation from their beginning as fishermen? Was that even thought about back then? Uh, actually, it was. Um, if you go back to Scripture Junior, typically when they caught a trout, they kept it and ate it. But they, even his family, realized that you couldn't do that. And back, you couldn't do that or you were just going to deplete your favorite waters. So they got involved with trout stocking and trout rearing to try to stock enough fish that that it would uh, help in that manner. So, so even back then, in the early 1920s, they were worried about the decline of their favorite streams. Because like I said, he was just catching huge trout you know, all through his young man in his 20s and his 30s. And then, you know, he got up into his 40s and 50s, and he noticed, well, things are not the same as they were. Uh, some of the other folks, um, they all had some part in conservation. We're going to talk about, I'm sure, Lee Wolf, who had a huge part in conservation. Um, even, you know, back into the 1930s, he was the father of catch and release. Perry Ellers, who most people probably haven't heard of. He was very active in local conservation efforts uh, around his area. Fran Betters was also involved with trying to, especially, you know, the West Branch of the Osceola River, trying to keep the quality of the fishing with the conservation needed for that. Um, Ed Bendel, the fellow that I knew, was was also involved in conservation efforts. So, yeah, even, even back then, I mean, it they had some of the same ethic that we have now. I mean, it wasn't obviously a hundred, hundred percent catch and release, but they did realize that you just couldn't go into your favorite backcountry brook trout stream and keep every trout you caught. Yeah. It's the same. Well, it's worse today, but it's the same challenges as too many people, not enough water, not enough fish, you know, I mean, you just deplete it. Um, I just read uh, not the most recent, but the, the last National Geographic, they did an article on the sea otters, you know, which uh, their natural range used to be from um, the end of the Aleutian Islands all the way down to Cabo San Lucas, basically. Um, but they were talking about back then with the Native Americans, how they were in sync with <laughs> nature back then. They'd only harvest what they needed and it would constantly replenish itself, you know. Um, but you weren't dealing with tens of thousands of people uh, hitting the resource back then like we're doing today. And I'm just talking about a small area of the country. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a uh, question keeps coming up, and I don't think any of us have an answer yet. For, um, yeah, something we're going to struggle with going forward as, as fly fishers, I think. Um Bill also asked here, were all these greats, um, in quotes, uh, terrific at casting? Was there mention of their casting ability in your research? I am not going to throw one of them under the bus. <laughs> I, can tell you, I can tell you for sure that the answer was no. No? <laughs> um, in one, one case, it's a definite no. 
in other cases, they were probably decent casters. They were good good anglers. Um, mm-hmm. They knew the stream, they knew what the fish wanted, and they got it to the fish. And picture, you know, we talk about casting, were they great casters? The gear that they were using back then, split bamboo or cane rods and you know, scripture was probably using fly lines made out of braided horsehair. The the gear is primitive by today's standards, and they went there and they got the job done. Um, some of them were, I, I'm sure, very good. You know, Lee Wolf, obviously, they had the Wolf Fly Fishing School. He was he was a, probably a very good caster, um, but no. Not all okay. of them, I, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of people put a lot of this on casting nowadays, the art and science of it. Uh, and I'm assuming that back then, too, you maybe, maybe the fish were a little bit more forgiving than, than they might be today. Maybe they're not, they weren't getting, you know, hammered as much, but who knows? Yeah, yeah. After a while, I'm sure those fish got wise, too. So casting had to be important, but. Anyway, um, okay, let's jump to, um, let's see. I'm not going to get through everybody, but I definitely <laughs> want to talk about Lee Wolf. And uh, let's go to Lee Wolf now, uh, because a lot of sure. people, if you don't know that name, something's wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, yeah. the interesting thing is Lee Wolf is the reason that I wrote this book, because I was doing a series, or I was doing an article on the Wolf Fly series for uh, American Angler, and I went down to the Catskill Museum, and I had no idea that this was going to take place. I was down there to meet the president of the museum and photograph the wolf exhibit, and I walk in the door, and there's Joan Wolf waiting for me, and she wanted to come down so I could interview her and ask any questions. And I ended up sitting down with her and her husband, Ted, for uh, a couple hours. I had all these notes. So I went back and I did the American Angler. And I'm like, you know, it would be neat to have a book on the Adirondacks because there's, there's nothing like it. And Wolf would certainly fit in there because the Wolf series of flies that he created, he made them because of the Adirondacks. He was living down towards the Catskills at the time, but the Catskill style of dry flies, he found they didn't work very well up in the Adirondacks because you got places like the West Branch of the Osable, you got a lot of velocity and the flows are tumbling down through the rocks uh, it's a lot heavier flow and more rugged water that they were trying to fish and uh, wolf initially he went to college to be an engineer so he's got the engineer's mind but then he decided he didn't like engineering he wanted to be a famous artist so he went to paris and learned art I think he was more of an artist than an engineer, but he still had, you know, that engineering principles and strength of materials and everything. And I can definitely see that in the wolf flies. He made the, the initial one was the gray wolf. And I think he was making that for the slate grays up in the Adirondacks. 
he also made the white wolf, which I'm pretty sure was more of a Catskill pattern for the coffin fly. And then he came up with the royal wolf, which most people have heard of the royal wolf fly. And what was interesting about them is that they don't really tie them the way he did. His looked pretty rugged because I had them to photograph. They were very big. They were like size six or size eight. And uh, he was another one that could hold the hook in his hand and tie the fly. And he used bucktail for the tails and the wings. Uh, usually, if you see a royal wolf today, it's going to have calf tail for the wing. But he used bucktail. And that whole series of flies, and he was the first one to do hair wing dry flies instead of feather wing. And uh, this all came about, again, in the early 1930s. But the wolf flies owe their history, at least in a major part, to the Adirondacks. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I can kind of see this rugged water, kind of like Western rivers, right? Where you, you need something mm-hmm. that's floating high and, yep. and can stay visible. And uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And then of course, uh, Joan became in her own right, maybe not associated with the Adirondacks, but a key person in the fly fishing industry. It still is. Yeah. So um, she yeah. certainly is. And I would say that she is one of the nicest people I've ever met she's a wonderful person and I had a great interview and I'm very honored I got to do that. Yeah. Very special. Very special. Um, to give, to give you her time and, and at the opportune moment and look what it created whole new book. <laughs> so that's great. What else? Is there any other things uh, you'd like to tell us about Lee? The thing that I found interesting about him were his exploits as a pilot. Uh, Lee Wolf was a brilliant promoter. So he got interested in fishing for Atlantic salmon in uh, Newfoundland and uh, New Brunswick area. So, well, actually, it was Newfoundland and Labrador. So he wrote a letter to the Piper Aircraft Company. And he said, hey, look, I'm doing these films of fishing in these areas, and I really need a plane. They gave him a plane. Really? They gave him, it's called, it's called a Super Cub. And it's, it's a bush plane that you'll see in Alaska. And I've been in a lot of bush planes in Alaska in my times up there. And I, I flew in a Super Cub. It's a two-seater. You sit right behind the pilot. Uh, the plane is made of canvas, lacquer-covered canvas, and aluminum tubing frame. So he gets this super cub, flies it to Newfoundland. And we're talking the 1940s. There was no such thing as a GPS. You had a compass in the plane. And compasses can have errors, especially in an airplane. I mean, if the plane is, is turning or, you know, powering up on takeoff, the compass can make he was flying across the Atlantic Ocean to go where he was salmon fishing on, <laughs> in Newfoundland in this plane. And there's Alaskan bush pilots that wouldn't do what he did with the plane. And he got, he got lucky a couple times. And one time there, there's a strut. He had, the plane was on floats. 
and there was a strut holding the float to the aircraft that broke. So he had to land it on the one float and keep the pressure off the other float because it was just going to break. And he landed the plane, got it up the shore, went into town, got a bunch of nuts and bolts and parts and wire and put it all back together, and off he flew. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> but, but he pioneered uh, a lot of the fishing, like you see about fishing for the giant brook trout up in Labrador and all that. He's the one that pioneered all that, and he did it during World War II. They would let him land up there because they were looking for recreational stuff for the soldiers. And huh. he kind of got the, the job of going up and developing that. And um, so his exploits as a pilot, they led to him exploring these areas. He established a fishing camp. He did all these things and he got known as a writer and a filmmaker. And eventually he made his way to the American sportsman TV show. And I remember being a kid and, you know, you had three channels. You had CBS, <laughs> NBC, ABC. See, right, and yeah. he, he was on this show. I mean, it was a fishing show on TV or they, you know, they'd go do these incredible things. And he was on that show and it was just incredible. I mean, he challenged Jock Scott to a, an Atlantic salmon fishing contest in Scotland and flew over there and they filmed the whole thing and he was the only one that caught a salmon, so he won. And he just did incredible things as a filmmaker and a, as an angler. Just an, an awesome legacy. And he yeah. left a lot of, there a number of great books, but my favorite book was uh, where he was talking about the things he did as a pilot. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, he was kind of a uh, man of many skills and talents, that's for sure. Yeah. And back then doing film, I mean, I, my background is photography. I got a degree in illustrative photography. All my photography years were done when there was film and not in the digital world. But back then, it, 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 you know, the film world is not easy. <laughs> you can't fix no. things, you know, I mean, you have to get it. You have to get it on the film. And if you don't get and in some of those cases, they wouldn't know as I well knew because I went to Australia and shot for three weeks and didn't know until I got back and processed the film whether I got what we needed, right? And in those cases, they're back in the bush shooting this stuff, and they don't know if they have it until they get back and process it. They didn't have the protection that, you know, cases and stuff like no. that today. Waterproof, you know. No, the waterproofing uh, and uh, uh, keeping the I moisture mean, out of it. No, they didn't. It's amazing that they got they did get what they got, and um, yeah, I'm always just so impressed with with that kind of stuff. But uh, well, very good. Well, let me do another quick break here, and then I'll come back and hit a couple of these other questions, and uh, maybe talk about Francis Betters uh, because I think we're going to run out of time. So let me do this break, and I'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. FFI efforts include being a strong advocate for removing dams on the Snake River, preserving water quality through their science on the fly program, and taking action to conserve the declining populations of Atlantic striped bass. FFI serves as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. 
These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Rob Streeter about the greats of Adirondack fly fishing. Okay, Rob, there's a couple other questions that came in before the show. I want to see if we can knock these out about fishing up in the Adirondacks. Um, and hopefully you'll, your stories will inspire many other people to go check it out up there and go fishing. But Leo Hamill, New Hampshire, he says, can you trout spay fish for big rounds in central New York other than going over to the big lakes areas, uh, rivers for salmon and browns, question mark? So are there are there opportunities to do some spay fishing without going to the big sure, lakes? Sure, you know, I will preface my answer by saying I am not a trout spay guy. I have fished with switch rods for on the Lake Ontario trips. So I'm familiar with the concept and but yes, I would say one stream that comes to mind would be the West Canada Creek would be a potential for that cuz it looks like it's something that is relegated to larger streams. Mm-hmm. We have right. other streams. And he mentioned salmon and browns. Right. The Lake Champlain tributaries get runs of both. I would say the Boquette River would be worth checking out. Uh, they've gone in in recent years, and they've taken dams out on the Boquette, and we're now getting salmon up through into their spawning areas that they haven't been at in a hundred years. Um, again, they're landlocked salmon, but we also get some browns. Uh, the Saranac River down in Plattsburgh, it's going to be kind of an urban fishing experience more than anything, but you can catch landlocked salmon there as well. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, Matthew Dickens in Chester County, Pennsylvania, wrote in and asked, uh, how could the fishing style of the fly fishing greats mentioned be characterized, and is that in contrast to how fishing is primarily done today in the Adirondacks? What might the greats feel about Euro-style fishing and fishing pressure in general? Okay, well, depends on the person that you're talking about. Um, Scripps certainly fished with dry flies and was very good at it. He had uh, people that taught him that. Uh, Ray Bergman, who's known for his wet flies and certainly fished a lot of wet flies, also fished streamers, and he was a pretty good dry fly guy that uh, I don't think a lot of people associate with him. Um, Perry Ellers... I'm not sure on his fishing style. I think he would fish anything that was going to work. Uh, Perry was the one who was the mentor to my friend, Ed Bendel. Ed did a lot of dry fly fishing, but Ed did a lot of streamer fishing, including trolling streamers for landlocks and big browns and a couple of little lakes up near his home. Fran Betters, again, he fished nymphs. He fished uh, a lot of different dry flies. If you look at his pattern guide, which was 
kind of an instrumental influence on me when I was in my 20s and, you know, I was doing fly tying to go up into the Adirondacks. His pattern book was excellent, and it, it had all of those things. So, you know, they fished with a variety of techniques. They weren't all just a dry fly guy or a wet fly guy. But the fishing today, I mean, the, the way I fish is probably pretty close to the way a lot of them fished. What would they think of Euro nymphing? I'm not sure because some of them I think would not like it because it's not really uh, similar to traditional fly casting that they did throughout their lives. But I'm thinking of Lee Wolf and his love for tinkering and engineering and everything. I think he might might have liked that. I, you know, it's hard to say for sure. He was probably very set in his ways on on his fly fishing and you know i'm not totally sure of the answer but i'm thinking that that might appeal to the engineer in him um what would they think about the fishing pressure i don't think they any of them would be happy about it because you know as we talked about earlier in the show there's a lot more people on these streams i've seen it in my years there's a lot more pressure on the big name streams like the West Branch and the Al Sable. You certainly see that. There are also a lot of opportunities that, that people don't even think about. I mean, fly anglers are so trout-centric that it's amazing. But I live right on the Mohawk River, which is a big navigable river, and I fly fish for smallmouths. I don't think in the last 15 or 20 years on the Mohawk, I've ever seen another guy with a fly rod. There's tons wow. of bass tournaments, but, you know, the, the people just don't get into the warm water species like they do with the others, and there's a lot of opportunity for that up in the Adirondacks. There's streams that you can go and try for muskies. There's streams that are really good for smallmouths. There's lakes and ponds that are good with largemouths and pickerel and, and all kinds of species that they don't get pressure from fly anglers. They certainly get, you know, spin fishermen and bait anglers, but they don't get the pressure from the fly rod people. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm seeing more and more. In fact, somebody wrote in on my last show and he has a comment and I forget who it was. It doesn't matter. But he was saying, he was asking me to please do more shows on, you know, on fish other than trout. Uh, and, uh, you know, there is a lot more interest, especially, I mean, just think, you know, 20 years ago, would you go fly fishing for carp? <laughs> right. You know, and, and, and yet now that's, you know, it has been a thing for a long time. So um, I'm actually doing my next show is fly fishing Houston and southeast texas and we're talking spotted bass largemouth bass gar smallmouth i mean all kinds of warm water carp it's like a whole nother world it's very interesting you know so yeah there's a lot more out there that we need to broaden our base but you know getting back to this idea of what would they think about certain things i remember the guy that i learned to fly fish with we were both just a year apart we learned from our neighbor fly tying and stuff and we fished together and, you know, life took us apart and we got back together years later. And now we fish a lot together. But he, um, when I, I had never fished a stream with him, I'd always fished lakes and we went stream fishing one day and he's fishing. No, no strike indicator, no suspension device, 
you know, he's basically getting his nymphs down deep and, you know, without any kind of an indicator or anything. And I'm going, what are you doing? Because that was, you know, I'm going, you mean you don't use a strike indicator? <laughs> he goes, no, I've never used one. So, you know, it made me think people have been doing basically a kind of Euro nymphing going way back, right? But it needed a new name to get it exciting, you know? Uh, so You for can straight- find the traces of, to call it monofilament and nymphing 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading articles on that in, I don't know if it was Fly Fisherman or one of the magazines at the time, but that goes back a long way. Yeah. Not in its form today with the special Euro-nymphing rod. Right. And, you know, the science that they've got into the tying of the flies and the weighting, you know, just the right. weighting of the flies and how they use that. But monofilament nymphing down deep goes back a long way. I mean, we used a version of that on the Lake Ontario streams. We used to call it chuck and duck because you had a big old split shot to get everything down. And <laughs> you're usually fishing a nymph for steelhead at this time of year. And I, I remember doing that in the 80s. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, we may call it different things, but uh, yeah, it's hard, you know, like you say, if you go back far enough, you probably find something that, that is very similar. And um, uh, we repackage things, we remarket things, right? <laughs> that sometimes it just turns out they're a little fresher in our mind. But, uh, well, let's. Well, um, fly fishermen, I think, are gadget people and <laughs> one, of, one of the biggest centers. And, you know, when yep. you package it and, you know, I, I will proudly admit I asked for a Euro nymphing rod for Christmas and got one. I just set it all up. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's the shiny object syndrome, right? You know, um, if it's new yeah. and shiny, then I want one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of things to collect as a fly fisher. <laughs> lots of stuff. <laughs> um, Let's finish off because we're running out of time here. Let's finish off with Francis Betters because I know he's, sure. he's got an interesting story to tell. Well, Fran Betters is actually tied to Ray Bergman because Fran's father worked for the local highway department and he guided part-time and he his father guided Ray Bergman. So Fran mother actually taught them how to tie flies and they would tie the flies that Bergman and all these clients were going to use. He, you know, started fly fishing as a kid and, you know, like all kids, he grew up, he became a teenager and he wanted to do great things. He had a brief stint in the military in Korea, came back and uh, like a lot of young guys, he made a mistake that affected the rest of his life. They were driving along the West Branch and they probably had uh, a few too many and the guy driving wrecked the car and ended up with massive injuries. His back was all messed up. They didn't think he'd ever walk again. He ended up in the VA hospital for an extended amount of time, and and then they got him home. And he decided that he was going to fish again, and he decided that the river could heal him. So he would just kind of crawl out the river, 
and then crawl back, you know, and then he had to teach himself how to walk again and, and how to get around again. And he, as a young man, had big dreams. Fran was very smart as a young guy. He was good in science and math. He wanted to be an engineer, and he wanted to build the next Panama Canal or a great skyscraper or something that was going to last into eternity, that he was the one that designed it. And he never got to do that because of this accident. But what he did get to do is he decided that he was going to go into fly fishing. And he had an iconic fly shop up on the West Branch. And there, there's just a ton of stories on that fly shop. And um, The fly shop was characterized, there was kind of a cartoonish young lady that had hooked her skirt with the, the fly, and it was like a sign, and that, you know, that was always out front. Well, the first one got hit by the snowplow and destroyed and then he had the same artist made another one and that one I think got sold and then he had the third one so the shop was always it was it was a red building with white trim right on the river so he had this shop for years and betters he wrote several books and like I mentioned before I was really influenced by his fly pattern book in which he describes how to tie the Osable wolf and some of his other uh, flies that he's just known for, like the usual and the haystack. Well, the haystack is the precursor to the comparadon. It's basically deer hair wing, deer hair tail, no hackle. Um, and it, it works very well on selective trout and it, it became famous. The Osable Wolf is his take on uh, Lee Wolf's Wolf series. And I've caught, more, most of the trout I've caught in my life, I've caught on the Osable Wolf because I like to fish attractor dries and uh, pocket water. So he came out with all these flies, and, you know, he was an iconic fly fisherman right on that river. He met many famous people. There were actors, there were all kinds of celebrity sports people and everything that they would go up and they wanted to fish up there and they would be, you know, stopping into his shop and trying to get information. Well, one day he's sitting there and his wife tells him, well, there's a phone call in the house. You got to come get it. He's like, well, I'm busy. I'm tying flies in the shop. She goes, you got to come get the phone call in the house. He goes in the house and on the phone is president Jimmy Carter who wants to come up and fish and he's trying to get the lowdown on all the conditions and all that. So he had presidents calling him to get information. He, he was just kind wow. of a humble guy that, that just lived along the West branch and uh, tied and sold flies. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So what do you think his, his major contribution is to fly fishing? I think his, his major contribution, I, I really like his pattern book, but mm -hmm. the neatest thing about Fran Betters is if you go up, there's a little town called Wilmington Notch along the West Branch, and there's a dam, and the, the West Branch is dammed up there. Right at that dam, and how wonderful for the town to do this, 
the town recognized him. There's a monument, there's a, a granite monument that talks about him and his contributions to fly fishing. And an artist made um, metal versions of his three big flies. Oh, wow. The Sable Wolf and the Haystack and the Usual. So those metal sculptures are there. And you must have made a really impressive contribution to a sport and, and to your town that all the folks in the town get together and, and they make that kind of a monument for you to go through time. Yeah, that's special. That's special for sure. Well, one last question. We'll wind things up. Um, Phil Burden in Apex, North Carolina, wrote in. He says, Rob, in your book of the great son Adirondack fly fisherman, who turned out to be the most interesting for you as you were doing your research and why? If I could travel time, I would like to go have and go fishing with William Scripture Jr. Scrip mm. because he seemed like he was just a comical character who loved to have a good time. He, um, there was always some kind of hijinks that he was involved with, <laughs> but he was also this incredible fly mm-hmm. fisherman. And one story that I remember, um, Scrip was up, I think it was the Oswagachi, and he was catching trout. And these other guys were there fishing, and they weren't catching anything. So what they did was they went and turned him into the game warden. So they somehow got a hold of a game warden. They called the guy up and got him out of his bed to come up and arrest Scrip, and they said he was breaking all these laws, and he did this, and he did that. <laughs> so the game warden came up. And he talked to Scrip. Scrip hadn't done anything wrong. And he didn't have, you know, fish exceeding the limit. He didn't break any game laws. And the game warden decided he wasn't too happy about getting up out of bed. So then he goes over to the guys that turned him in. And a couple of the boys in that group didn't have a fishing license. So he ended up arresting some of them and away he went. There there was always... a comical story about Scrip. Very interesting. Yeah, good, good. Well, we've got to wind things up here and um, uh, call it a night. But hang with me a little bit longer, Rob, because we're going to give away a few prizes here, one-year membership to Trout Unlimited and one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and also, you know, a copy of your book, The Greats of Adirondack Fly Fishing. And by the way, if you don't win Rob's book tonight, uh, we've got a link to it there on our website, right on the home page, where you're probably at right now. So if you don't win, do them a favor and uh, go get a copy. Because we only covered a few pages out of that book. There's many more stories that Rob's got in there and uh, a lot more detail. And some people that we didn't talk about tonight because of just short on time. So check it out, pick up a copy, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Do you travel to fish? Medical and security emergencies happen. When they do, you can rely on Global Rescue, the world's leading membership organization, providing integrated medical, security, travel risk, and crisis response services to travelers worldwide. Without a Global Rescue membership, an emergency evacuation could cost you more than $100,000. That's why over 1 million members trust Global Rescue to get them home when the worst happens. Don't travel without Global Rescue. Memberships start at just $129. Learn more about Global Rescue's program. You can just click on the Global Rescue icon 
in the footer of our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, or in the right-hand column of our homepage, you'll see a, a logo there. Take you right to their site, and you can check them out. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what'd you think of this show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away uh, these prizes that we have. And let me just fire up my database here. Well, the first thing we're going to give away is a membership to Fly Fishers International. Now, if you didn't register for tonight's show, then you'll need to do so next time because it's too late now. But do that so that you don't have a chance on winning one of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to get your prize. So the first thing we're giving away is Fly Fishers International membership, a one-year membership. And let me see here. The winner. Uh, so that is going to be Tom Snyder. Tom Snyder. And um, just trying to see where. Um, not sure where Tom's from. But anyway, Tom Snyder, congratulations on um, getting the one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And now we'll draw for a winner for the Trout Unlimited. And if you're not a member of Trout Unlimited, go to tu.org. Join up. If you don't win tonight, give them some support as well. And there our winner is Evan Jenkins. Evan Jenkins. So congratulations, Evan. And I know you'll enjoy your membership as well. So now we're going to give away a copy of Rob's book. The Greats of Adirondack Fly Fishing. And like I said, if you don't win here, go buy a copy. Uh, I've got the link right there on our site. And let's see here. Let me clear my queue here. So the way this is, the way we play this is you've got to put in the answer on our homepage in the same place you could ask questions at during the show. First person that gets it correct wins a copy of Rob's book. So, so the question is, Ray Bergman wrote a book. What's the name of the book and what year was it published originally? What's Ray Bergman's book and what year was it published? So we got a two-part question here. Okay, so this takes a few seconds here, Rob, for them to hear me because there's a little delay and then for them to respond. So we'll have to entertain them here. <laughs> Why are we waiting? I'll, I'll try not to blurt out the answer. Yeah, don't answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's only happened once, which is pretty good, but uh, it's kind of, <laughs> it was funny. I had to come up with another question quickly. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, I think we might have it right off the bat here. Uh, I've got an answer of trout in 1938. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay. So John Petrangelo? Petrangelo? <laughs> okay, so I'm destroying your name, John, but uh, you know who you are. And uh, yeah, just uh, what you need to do is in the same form that you just filled out to answer the question, put in your address. Got your name, I got your email address, but I need your shipping address to ship the book out to you. So if you will do that, uh, we'd really appreciate it. And we have right behind him other winners, Bob Younger, Mike Tra Tragat. Uh, nope, wrong year. Uh, Phil McCartney got it right, too. Yeah, okay, good, good. So we got a winner, and uh, thanks, and congratulations. Thanks for paying attention, John. 
and I'm sure you'll enjoy the book. Good book to read by the fireplace with a nice glass of scotch, I would think. <laughs> well, thank you, Rob, so much for being with us again tonight and taking time out to, to share your experiences and your knowledge and research about the Adirondacks. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm honored that I got to be on your show, Roger, and I appreciate you having a show like this for those of us who like to fly fish. So thank you very much. Always fun to talk about fly fishing, and you're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Our, hopefully, you've all found our archive, our podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. In the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 365 shows, I think, now. And uh, you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, like trout, tarpon, Madison River, Adirondacks, so and so forth. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you discover there. Lots of learning to, to be had. Our next broadcast is going to be March 15th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. And on that show, I interview Robert McConnell. And our topic for the show is going to be fly fishing Houston and southeast Texas. Robert started fly fishing in western Pennsylvania and later moved to Houston, Texas. He had to adapt and learn about fishing a whole new world from the city waterways to backcountry rivers and streams. Join us to learn about fishing warm water species in southeast Texas, including carp, spotted bass, largemouth bass, panfish, and even prehistoric gar and bowfin. So join us then, and we'll have some fun with Robert. Be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar. Just click on the button right below Robert's picture. It says add to your calendar. That'll add it to your calendar, and then you'll be all set. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Muskie Town, Global Rescue, Gills Fly Fishing International, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.